19. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness resides. Therefore, dear friends, because you are waiting for these things, make every effort to be found at peace, spotless and unblemished in him. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our dear brother Paul wrote to you, according to the wisdom which was given to him, as he does also in all his letters, speaking in them about these things, in which there are some things hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable distort to their own destruction, as they also do to the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, and these are the verses we're focusing on today, therefore, dear friends, because you know this beforehand, guard yourselves so that you do not lose your own safe position because you have been led away by the error of lawless persons, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we look at these concluding two verses that many would just brush off as being an epilogue uh, to uh, a long letter, Uh, Father, we know that there's wonderful and beautiful truths here for us. Open our hearts and our minds now to your spirit as we study them, Uh, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. All right. I'm going to... We have some sound cord equipment I need to move out of the way so that I don't trip over it. Uh, uh, so we want to look at um, Paul's final exhortations uh, to uh, the readers of this letter. And uh, I, it occurred to me this morning um, that sometimes I think that uh, it's easy to get sesquipedalian. How many of you know what the word sesquipedalian means? Okay, sesquipedalian means a a person who is sesquipedalian uses long words that are obscure and probably not many people know. And uh, so anybody that knows what the word sesquipedalian is probably is one. Uh, So, uh, you know, we need to to simplify things. A number of years ago I was in Taiwan and, and I was teaching a class of people that only had the very basic rudiments of English. Now, I didn't understand why they gave me that class to teach because I should have had the class that had advanced English because we would have been able to communicate better. Uh, but I think my father-in-law wanted to humble me a little bit, and so he put me in with these people that barely spoke any English. And I came to realize that uh, we use a lot of terms without knowing if people understand what we mean. And I, I was teaching this class from Romans and was talking about the adoption into the family of God. And they looked at me and says, what's adoption? Well, they didn't know what that word meant, so I had to explain it. Well, once I explained it, one of them nodded, and then he explained to everybody else from Chinese, and we were all good from that point forward. They knew what adoption was. Unfortunately, some of my other attempts to communicate to that class didn't go as well. We got to talking about, in from James chapter 1, the need for us to engraft scripture in our lives. And engraft scripture means you memorize it, you meditate on it till that scriptural truth becomes a part of you. And, uh, you know, you have to understand that I grew up in Texas. And uh, so I was trying to explain to them 
what it, grafting meant. And of course, you know, if you have a tree like an apple tree, uh, you can uh, cut a notch in that's uh, basically a branch. You cut off a branch, make a little V. Then you take a branch from another apple tree that's making the kind of apple that you want and you make it uh, uh, have a, a shape on the end of it that fits the notch that you just cut out and you put the branch from the other apple tree into this branch and then you put some sealant on it and you wrap it with a special tape and after a while, that new branch takes its nutrition from the tree and it will make a different kind of apple. So you could actually have one apple tree and you could make uh, Washington apples on it and Granny Smith apples and Roman apples and Red Beauty apples and uh, all the other kind of apples. You could have one apple tree growing a whole bunch of different kinds of apples. Um, but I thought, as an ignorant uh, American, what they would say in Chinese, uh, a young guizhi, which means a foreign devil, uh, th that I needed to explain it with a tree they would know about. And I didn't know... Uh, you know, I, I thought, well, I know you can't graft banana trees, so that probably won't help. And I thought, I know what? A pineapple tree. And so I began explaining to them how you could get, you know, different kind of pineapples. I did not know that pineapples grew in bushes. Uh, so uh, they had a good uh, uh, laugh at my expense, but uh, uh, I think they, they found a polite way to say dumb American, and they went on, and we were all good friends, and, and uh, it was fine. Uh, but I just wanted to make sure that before we talk about exhortations that we understand what that is because it's not a word we use a lot anymore. And, and uh, so we want to make sure it, an exhortation is when we use words uh, to incite positive behavior. Now, I realized as I was typing this due to recent news items, I needed to be careful to not just say incite, uh, uh, but to incite positive behavior. And by the way, I think some people are being accused of inciting that didn't incite. Uh, uh, Brother Steve mentioned, uh, I thought it was interesting, mentioning uh, Gamaliel teaching uh, Saul of Tarsus as the Yale of the day. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, but uh, students at Yale are asking the university to, re, uh, to rebuke and take back their diplomas uh, that they gave to certain conservatives, including Kelly McEnany, who works for the president, and also our Senator Ted Cruz, uh, basically to take back uh, their law degrees uh, from them. And uh, I think that's ridiculous. And, and, of course, there's also a move underway now to invoke the 14th Amendment to remove Ted Cruz from office because he had the audacity to challenge a vote that he thought was corrupt. But he did so in a gracious way, and I hope that uh, I hope things will settle down a little bit, but I'm not sure um, but it's to incite positive behavior. You say something to get people to do something godly. You say something to get them to behave in a better way. You say something to make sure that they make wise decisions and wise choices. And, and also an exhortation is just a word of encouragement. It's meant to lift somebody up. And, that, you know, how many of you need encouragement? I'm going to raise my hand. Uh, I, I know I need encouragement, so we need to learn how to exhort. In fact, is it's such an important thing that in the New Testament we're told to exhort one another daily and so much the more as you see the day approaching. In other words, the closer and closer it gets to the day of judgment, the closer and closer it gets to the time Jesus will come back, we need encouragement more and more because you know why? Jesus said in the latter days that the, the hearts of men would grow cold and iniquity would abound. 
So in order for as we get closer and closer, the world really is getting worse. I mean, I know we've always had sins. We've always had the same sins. But Jesus said that in the latter days, iniquity would abound. So we need encouragement more than ever. Now, spiritual exhortation is slightly more than just regular exhortation in that it specifically uh, in, encourages people to live a life that glorifies God the Father and our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. And by the way, whatever gives God the most glory is also for our best good. Uh, nothing that we do that glorifies God will be bad for us. Uh, it, it might be temporary that we have some uh, negative consequences or some persecution, but ultimately uh, our lives benefit eternally when we do what glorifies the Lord. So now that we know what exhortation is, let's look at the context. We've been through all of Second Peter. Uh, today is the the twelfth and final lesson uh, of Second Peter uh, that that I've preached, and all the others are on our website. Uh, but Second Peter's been all about false teachers, and uh, Brother Steve touched a lot on that in his Sunday school lesson from Second Corinthians eleven today, and the dangers of false teaching that creep in. And I, I appreciate it so much his teaching, and I I heard so many comments that I thought, oh, I need to talk about that. Uh, but there's just uh, just a wealth of information that was there. So I hope if you weren't here for Sunday school, you'll go online later this week and listen to that lesson. It was excellent. Um, but in all the in, in in the whole book, it's been a warning about false teachers, not getting caught up in heresy, talking about the judgment that those who corrupt God's word and their false teachers will get. And in Peter's view, those who are false teachers that are taking people away from the true gospel are not believers. Uh, they will not go to heaven. They will suffer eternal punishment. Now, there are those who deliberately are corrupting the gospel. Obviously, they're not Christians. And then there are Christians who get somewhat deluded. They backslide. They get off of the path of truth. And they begin starting to allow some compromise in their lives. And Peter warns against both of those things. And then just in the verses that we read, because we're only looking at verses 17 and 18, but if you go back just a little bit, Peter has just gotten through reminding us that Jesus Christ is coming and that we're to look for his return. And But he makes the point that a day with the Lord is like a thousand years in our time. In other words, God's sense of time doesn't match our sense of time. Uh, I have noticed in my life, and I'm sure it's true for you, that when you pray for something, God seldom does it in the time frame that you wanted him to do it in. He does it in his own time, and his own time is perfect in, in the, the concept of his eternal plan, but he doesn't often do it. I, I am, uh, I've been in information technology since 1984. I was working on computers back when you had to punch cards uh, there and I'm still a software engineer today for one of the largest IT companies in the world, and uh, I'm thankful to have that job. But I have to constantly learn, constantly keep up. But but quite frankly, one thing I've learned from being in the the IT industry for the last 36 years is I expect to get an answer every time I click a button. In other words, I click a button, I want something to happen instantly, and sometimes that. That mentality carries over to my prayer life. I want to pray a prayer, then open up my eyes and look around to see where the answer is. And God doesn't usually do it that way. He has on occasion, but he doesn't always uh, do it that way. Sometimes he actually answers uh, my prayer while I'm still praying, and that's a wonderful thing. But it doesn't often work that way. But 
Peter reminds us that even though God's sense of time is not like our sense of time, we can still count on God to be faithful to always keep His promises. He never fails to keep His promises. So we can take courage knowing that our Savior's coming soon. He's going to destroy everything that's temporary. Paul would say that the things which are seen, like this pulpit, the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so we recognize that that one day the Savior will come back. He'll loose, uh, Peter says, he'll loose the elements with the fervent heat. Everything in this world is going to be destroyed. When the Bible talks to us about us seeing a new heaven and a new earth, it doesn't mean he's doing a retread job of this earth. He has already loosed every atom and every molecule of this earth. He creates a totally new earth that's never been touched or tainted by sin. I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, and, and he will bring us into his eternal presence where we will enjoy eternal rewards. And so he's just got through reminding us that there's a Savior that's coming. He's coming victoriously and he is going to take uh, the redeemed home with him. So now Peter concludes the last, uh, in the last two verses of Second Peter, he gives us two exhortations or two parting words of encouragement. Uh, if any of you have kids or when you have kids, you'll know that when you uh, go on a trip, they're going on a trip somewhere or maybe you're leaving on the trip, you like to leave some last minute instructions or some last minute encouragements or be careful about this or be careful about that. Uh, I've traveled to almost every continent except I haven't been to the Arctic or Antarctica, but I've been to a lot of the continents uh, in my travels uh, for work. And one of the things that... Uh, uh, I now know when I hear people that are going somewhere, I often give them travel advice. I'll tell them, you know, that, uh, oh, you need to be aware of this, or you might want to go to this restaurant. Judy and I were in a marriage seminar a couple of years ago, and we had a, at our table was a pilot from Delta Airlines who lived in Michigan, and also at our table was a, a doctor from another state, uh, and uh, uh, he was from Oklahoma, and uh, when I said Michigan, it was Missouri, actually. Uh, so we had an a airline pilot from Missouri and a doctor from Oklahoma. When the, first, when the airline pilot told me he was from Missouri, I instantly said, oh, one of my favorite restaurants is in St. Louis in the Union Station. Uh, there's a hotel behind the Hyatt, and I even told him the best dish on the menu. And then when the doctor mentioned he was from Oklahoma, I said, oh, have you ever been to the Red Rock Canyon Grill on Lake Hefner Parkway in Oklahoma? And if you're there, at right at sunset, they ring a big cowbell and they, they raise up the, the blinds uh, so that you can see the sunset uh, over uh, Lake Hefner. And, you know, and then the pilot looks at me and says, are you a travel agent? And I, I, it is strange, though, that most of what I remember about other countries are where the good restaurants are. Uh, but at any rate, and other states as well. But, uh, you know, you, it's, it's good to have people offer advice. I remember when I was a kid, every time I left home, um, my mother, if I was going to spend the night at a friend's house, for example, my mother always gave me the same two pieces of advice. And you have to understand my mother was a, a very intelligent woman, but she also had an amazing sense of humor. And even after in her declining years where she wasn't thinking as clearly and her memory was bad, she still had a great sense of humor. And the advice she gave me every time I was leaving is, Robert, remember these two things. Don't jump out of a plane without a parachute and don't jump into a swimming pool 
that has no water. And those two things affected me because she told me this over and over again, that one day I was feeling particularly poetic and I wrote a couple of poems. I, I wrote one, pole, uh, one poem called Tadpole Jim about a guy jumping into uh, a swimming pool. And I have that somewhere at home. I don't remember it all from memory, but I do remember things like uh, he dived his last dive so swan-like and without care he accomplished two jackknives uh, before entering the water that wasn't there. You know, and uh, now the old fishy soul is gone from Tadpole Jim, and I don't know, I don't remember all the other. But anyway, I'll, maybe I'll put those poems online for you when I find them. But anyway, they, they moved me sufficiently. So just like my mom felt compelled to give me some humorous advice, Peter, in a greater way, feels compelled as he's pinning his final letter to his readers. Well, he had 1 Peter, now we have 2 Peter. He's not going to write again. He's getting old. He'll soon be with the Lord. He wants to give them some final parting words of wisdom, which are, by the way, very similar to what Paul told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And so we've read the scripture, and so let's, let's look at the two exhortations. Now, There are two kinds of exhortations or encouragements. There's negative exhortation, which is you don't want to do this. That's like you you tell people, uh, for example, I I offered to take uh, Stephen and Leah Woodworth with me the next time Judy and I go diving with sharks in Mexico. Uh, it's a wonderful thing to go diving with bull sharks. You, you come out of the water. I remember Judy, Leah, by the way, you'll want to know that when Judy was out of the water for 10 minutes, she says, I'm ready to do that again. So, uh, you know, special lady that can dive with 15, 500-pound bull sharks that are 10 feet long, and uh, one of them brushed right over the top of her head, and two of them slapped me in the face with their tails as they were turning in front of me. So we're close, <laughs> Okay. Uh, it, it's, a, it's an amazing woman who can, can not only enjoy it, but want to do it again. Um, and it was an amazing experience. What's funny is every now and then I'll see a special uh, National Geographic or something. I was watching one the other day, and they were trying to look at hammerhead sharks, and then they talked about how they had to get out of the water because the bull sharks were coming too. And I thought, that's nothing. My wife and I have swam with those. But uh, male bull sharks, by the way, are much different than female. We were only swimming with girls, and they're, they're a little less aggressive. Uh, but, you know, if, uh, if, if I were to take someone with me, I'd say, okay, don't wear bright-colored flippers on your feet or fins on your feet. The uh, reason why is sharks see by contrast. And so they're attracted to something that's a brighter color than everything around it, and they might think it's lunch. So uh, Judy had, normally has yellow fins when we go scuba diving, and if I'm scuba diving with 20 divers, it helps me figure out where she is because I'm looking for the diver with yellow fins. Of course, now she has a, a more flowery-looking uh a wetsuit, so she's much easier to find than she used to be. But that day, diving with sharks, we had to leave uh, the yellow fins behind and borrow a pair of black fins so that her feet wouldn't look like a snack for the sharks. You know, that would be a bad plan. Uh, so the thing is, sometimes our warnings are negative. Don't wear those fins. Uh, and so what is Peter's negative exhortation. And what we're going to do is just look at him real quick what the two exhortations are and then we'll go more in depth. And so he says, do not let the false teachers lead you astray in doctrine and in conduct. 
In other words, don't let them change your doctrine. Don't let them change your way of life. Uh, basically, in verse 16, he tells us the heretics are unstable. A lot of the new converts that weren't doctrinally grounded were unstable. By the way, that is one of the reasons we have Faith Bible Institute here at our church. It's a three-year program. If you go through all three years, you get a diploma. Uh, and in that three years... Uh, you Every week you go through uh, an Old Testament lesson, a New Testament lesson, and a theology lesson, which theology is just the study of God. But there's a lot of different uh, kinds of theology. Hamartiology studies the doctrine of sin. Pneumatology studies the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Angelology studies angels. Uh, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. So there's lots of ologies under theology. Uh, but it's why it's so important to go through all that. And I think that somebody that takes the commitment to do that and go through it in three years winds up being much better able to handle the Word of God and avoid doctrinal error. And I think every family ought to go through it. And I'm encouraged that uh, last week even we had uh, some people signing up for it. And uh, I'm really looking forward to that. Now, normally we always do it in the fellowship hall. And so we'll be meeting back here this Wednesday night at 615. And if you've already registered, by the way, I have your books uh, back here uh, in the pastor's office. Um, if you register, pre-registered. And I have more books on the way for those who just recently registered. Um, but that's a wonderful thing, and I think new believers are often unstable. They ask Jesus Christ to be their Savior, but they've never had any real discipleship, never had any real training, and so they're likely to be pulled into false doctrine. That's why they need a godly person they can go to and ask questions, or they need to take some training. But Peter says that most of his readers are stable, and he encourages them to stay that way, and not be led astray in doctrines and morals by these, these heretics. Don't, he says, don't even listen to it. Uh, as Brother Steve was talking about earlier, uh, when Mormon missionaries came to visit him, he didn't bid them Godspeed. We're not supposed to. Uh, we can, you know, I don't, when Mormon missionaries have encountered me or Jehovah's Witnesses or somebody that's teaching a corruption uh, of uh, Scripture uh, or has another entire Scripture altogether, as the Mormons do, uh, I don't. I don't say have a nice day. I don't pray God's blessings on them because they're out there trying to destroy people uh, with the wrong doctrine. And uh, I, I did a, several master's level papers on Mormonism. So usually, after they talk to me for a few minutes, they they put me on a list never to talk to again. Um, but we want to make so there's a negative exhortation. Don't be led away. And then there's a positive ex- exhortation, and that is where he says, "Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." And uh, he says, "You know, we need to use God gives us grace. He gives us knowledge. We need to use it. And the more we use it, the more we'll get." In other words, God gives us more grace and more knowledge when we use what He's already given us. And, and then. Uh, we need to grow in truth and righteousness, and that's the best preventive medicine. In medicine, we have a term called prophylaxis. A prophylaxis is something that prevents you from getting a disease, or it's a practice that would keep you from getting it. Many of you are wearing masks, and that is a prophylaxis to inhaling or ex- exhaling uh, viruses and bacteria and contaminants, and it's a good thing. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, hand sanitizer dispenser there uh, at the church and out here in the vestibule because that's a prophylaxis against getting contaminants on the things that you touch. So uh, basically the best thing you can do to prevent uh, getting involved in heresy or bad morals 
is to be filled with the Word of God, to grow in truth and righteousness. And if we're filled with the things above us, we won't do the things that should be beneath us as a child of God. And so that's uh, critically important. So now that we know there's a negative exhortation and a positive exhortation, uh, we need to also understand that this whole book has been a warning against false teachers. Um, Warnings are good things unless you ignore them. Uh, I've told some of you the story, but for those of you who've not heard, I'll tell it again. I've been a little dehydrated this last week, so I'm just uh, keeping a little water there. Um, I, I was driving down Highway 287, uh, going back to East Texas, because at the time I was pastoring in East Texas, but I was working in Dallas, and I got off work late, and so it's about 1 o'clock in the morning, and I'm driving down Highway 287, and there, as you know, if you go down Highway 287, after you get the other side of Interstate 45, there's a large reservoir there that we built, and there's a huge lake there, and it's now one of the lakes that supplies water to the state. Uh, a lot of that water comes to Dallas, interestingly enough, and so it's an important uh, resource uh, for us. And... Um, but it's also built, they built the lake in a flood-prone area. And so uh, there's these huge levees that hold the lake in, but I'm driving on the road, which is actually lower than the lake level, and we've been having some rain. So I came up right to the place where they have the dam, and they had those things out on the road showing that the road was closed to traffic. It's closed to traffic, and there was a detour sign, and I knew the detour would take me through Fairfield, Texas. It would be a 40-mile detour for me to get home. And 40 miles, when it's 1 o'clock in the morning, and you're exhausted, and you're tired, you don't want to drive an extra 40 minutes. So I thought to myself, because I'm an engineer, and I don't believe it until I can prove it, is that I'll just go around the sign, and I'll keep driving, because it's probably not that deep. And so I went around the sign, and I hadn't gone but about 30 feet the other side of that sign when my whole car began to move sideways because it was being moved by the water. By the way, it doesn't take a whole lot of water on the road to make your car move. So if you see one of those signs, I'm telling you, don't pass it. Take the detour. And so I immediately stopped. I put the car in reverse. I had barely enough traction on the back wheels to slowly back the car up. And as I backed the car up, my headlights... And this is, again, late at night, 1 in the morning. My headlights hit on an 18-wheeler truck. I'm talking, you know, truck pulling a huge trailer. And it was up to the windshield in water. If I'd have gone even five feet further than I went, uh, I, I wouldn't have made it home at all that night. And so I, every now and then I see warnings and I think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Uh, a number of years ago, I went riding uh, a horse. It was a race horse. His name was Joe Eat My Dust. He was retired. He's on a farm in Ben Wheeler, Texas, which is east of here. And uh, I wanted to ride a horse. I used to ride in the rodeo years ago, rode barrel races, and I thought, this will be fun. And so uh, I went, uh, I'd never ridden a genuine uh, quarter horse that was a race horse, and I thought, well, this will be fun. So I went down there, and then the, the girl that owned him was telling me, that the horse was kind of peculiar. He 
He didn't always uh, like people when he first met him. He, he decided instantly to hate some people and like others. And I, I kind of got the feeling, that he, the way he looked at me, that he didn't like me. But anyway, she put the, uh, the uh, saddle on and we walked up uh, to the barn. I was just going to walk him around the yard a few times. But then I wanted to get out on this 100-acre uh, farm and I wanted to open that horse up and just let him uh, gallop. I wanted to see what that felt like. And so while, when I got up to the, to the yard, I realized that the stirrups were too short. I'm a long-legged guy. So I started lengthening the stirrups, and the horse turned around and tried to bite me. Now, that was my second warning. So first of all, I'm told the horse doesn't like people. Secondly, he tries to bite me, but I, I got it uh, there. And, I, I, and the other thing was, you know, the name of the horse was Joe Eat My Dust. Now, that's an intimidating name. That should have been a warning. Uh, but then I, I got on the horse, I walked him around a little bit, and then uh, we got, I, I got out and I said, okay, let's, let's head out to the pasture. And uh, horses, if you don't know it, they go from a walk to a trot, and then this thing called a canter, which is the most uncomfortable part of riding a horse, and then to a gallop. Now, walking on a horse, no big deal. Trotting, not a big deal. But on a canter, if you're riding a horse, you have to do what's called posting. You have to learn how to make your body go up and down in perfect rhythm with the horse, or you become an out-of-control passenger. Well, race horses, I found out, get to canter a lot before I do. So the horse went into canter, and I wasn't posting properly. I got to be an out-of-control passenger, and I pulled back on the reins. And by the way, that was the other warning. She said he has a very sensitive mouth, and he can stop on a dime. Well, I pulled back on the reins to stop the horse, and she was right. He stopped on a dime. I didn't. And so I went over the front left side of the horse. I tore all the muscles in my left leg because my right foot got caught in the stirrup. And then Judy actually saw me do a flip in the air, and I landed flat on my back uh, on East Texas iron ore dirt that had not been rained on in three and a half months. It was basically like landing on concrete. Uh, and that day I actually had something in my belt that was metal and I landed on it and that made it hurt even worse. And so I ended up being in a wheelchair on the day that my oldest daughter got engaged. I'll never forget that. Uh, you know, I had warnings that I shouldn't be on that horse, but I ignored them. So I want to tell you from personal experience, I do stupid stuff now and then. But we sh this is a warning we can't afford to ignore. We got to stay away from false teaching. We have to stay away from false teachers. We have to make sure that everything that somebody says about, oh, well, God will do this for you, well, show it to me in the Bible. Show me that promise. Show it to me in the Scripture. Well, I got this word from the Lord in the middle of the night. I'm here to tell you, I don't believe it when somebody tells me they've had a vision in the night because God says His Bible, the revelation's complete, and everything I need for life and godliness, that's what the Scripture says, is already in the Bible. I don't need anything else. I don't need anything extraneous. So, warnings are important. An experienced mountain climber, for example, ensures their safety during the climb. They take necessary precautions. Uh, they put these little uh, wedges in the uh, uh, cracks that are in the rock that, and they tie pulleys to them so that when they fall, they can only fall maybe at most 10, 15 feet. If they didn't do that, they could fall all the way back down the mountain. So they take precautions and they know their climbing partners. They don't climb with people that they don't know well. And so painting, paying attention to warnings doesn't mean you're less confident. It helps you be more confident.
Same thing with scuba diving. I remember the first time I ever went scuba diving in the ocean, it was scary to me because I'd never done it before. I'd taken the classes and I dived in a pool, but you know, you get in the ocean and you're going down and, and I was having trouble controlling weight and I was using my weight up and down. Uh, my tank of air lasted me 18 minutes. Uh, now I, that same tank of air will, will hold for an hour. So I can, I can dive a lot longer. Uh, than I used to, because I'm calmer now. I don't, I don't get upset easily, and I'm calm, and I know what to do, and I know how to balance my weight, and things are better. So, paying attention to the precautions. And by the way, uh, in Mexico, for example, you can go, and they'll give you uh, a 30-minute class, and then you go to a pool, and you dive to the bottom of the pool, and then they immediately take you out to the ocean. That is not the way to scuba dive. The way to scuba dive is take the class, read the book, understand the, the physics, understand how things work. Then you do uh, a long day of pool work, and then you go and you dive in a local lake in a very controlled environment, and you go through all your skills, and they have you go underwater and do a whole bunch of different skills before they ever set you loose on a real dive. That's the way to do it. You want to have those precautions. So Peter, when he gives us these warnings in Second Peter, he's not trying to put a damper on his reader about how terrible life is and how gloomy things are and that the church is in trouble. He's basically saying, if you'll follow these exhortations, you'll stay safe in terms of your doctrine and in terms of your morality, and that's so very important. So let me talk a little bit about exhortations. And when you encourage others, remember these things, and these might be worth uh, writing down. First is... Exhortations are based in love. This is the fourth time in Second Peter that... Actually, it's the fourth time in Second Peter chapter 3, just this one chapter, that he refers to the readers as dearly beloved, or another translation calls it dear friends. And so he calls them beloved or dear friends. You know, if, uh, if, if I meet someone, and maybe I just met him at the gas pump, we had a 10-minute conversation. As we're leaving, I don't say... Oh, before you leave, can I give you two pieces of advice? Or before you leave, could I, could I exhort you to do something? I don't typically do that. I may, I may say, God bless you. Uh, if it's somebody I developed a real conversation with, I may give them a business card or email or something. But I don't typically give them exhortations. However, people that I love, if I see they would benefit from a particular word of encouragement or from a particular word of exhortation, I will give them that because there's somebody I care about. Peter gives his, this, these exhortations to us because he cares about his readers and he cares about the believers that will follow them. Uh, so it's, it's more than just have a nice day. Uh, they're based in love. Secondly, exhortations are a spiritual prognosis. Now, in medical lingo, there is a diagnosis and there's a prognosis. A diagnosis is when the doctor runs all the blood tests and does the x-rays and the MRIs and who knows what other kind of tests. And then the doctor says, you have this. And I remember a few years ago, I was in the doctor's office having taken a blood test and there's 12 pages of results. And we got to page three and in big handwriting on page three, he wrote, you have severe type two diabetes. Well, I changed my lifestyle. I never got on insulin. Don't take metformin. I don't have to. I'm not a diabetic. I'm not even pre-diabetic anymore. I just have to pay attention to what I eat. The type 2 diabetes is curable. Type 1, not so much. Uh, uh, 
there have been two recorded instances of people being healed of type 1, but as far as I know, they're the only two. Uh, but, but you can cure things. So the prognosis, so the diagnosis was type 2 diabetes. The prognosis was if you will follow this Mediterranean diet we're giving you, and if you will do this, this, and this, you can be cured of your diabetes. That was the prognosis. Prognosis is we know in advance if you do certain things, this will happen. That's the, the prognosis. So, uh, for example, if a doctor says if you continue to eat the same way you're eating now, you're going to have heart problems in a few years. Uh, I was with a dear friend yesterday uh, who uh, commented, and I wasn't looking for any kind of comment like this. It was just casual conversation that he, he said he realized how much he'd been blessed after he moved from Louisiana uh, to the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He'd been blessed in his career. He'd been blessed in a number of other ways. And he says, and then I remembered it was you who told me to come. And then he talked about uh, uh, how he was um, blessed in uh, another area. And, and then he, he says, and then I remember it was you that told me to do that. Uh, you know, so uh, a prognosis, uh, he, I actually told him to go see my doctor. Uh, my doctor ran the same blood test on him that he did on me and found out uh, and, and also told him about a specific medical test he needed. And after he got that specific medical test, uh, they gave, came back with the results and said, you're going to have a heart attack within a year if you don't change. And so uh, that's, that's a prognosis. It's not the prognosis you want to hear. If you don't change, you're going to have a heart attack. Uh, but sometimes that is a prognosis. Or somebody says, if you will change this in your diet... It'll help this problem. So uh, when you give someone a word of exhortation, the word, exor- uh, the word here uh, is prog- uh, prognoskentes, which is where we get our word prognosis for when he says seeing that you know these things before. That's verse 17. So he says to your reader, hey, since we know these things before, in other words, we have already a prognosis that if you don't avoid spiritual teachers, you're going to enter heresy. We already have a prognosis that God will keep you safe if you do fill your minds and hearts with the Scripture and you do meditate on it. Now, so by the way, when you use prognosis, there's two concepts involved. One is it means that you know something in advance. And Peter's readers already had the Old Testament Scriptures, so they already had truth. They had those Scriptures available to them. Uh, they had heard the teachings of the apostles, and sometimes these apostles would write letters called epistles, and they would be sent around, and they'd be shared from church to church to church or congregation to congregation, and so they'd heard the teaching of the apostles. They already had the, the first letter that Peter wrote to them. So Peter is basically saying, You already have no excuse from falling away from the truth. Why? Because you have the Old Testament, you have the word of the apostles, and you have the first letter I wrote you. There's no excuse. You know before the things that you need to stay godly. But there's another meaning to prognosis, and that means knowing what is of primary importance. So Peter is saying that the primarily important thing for them is that his readers would avoid apostasy. Apostasy means falling away from the truth. He says you, you, you can avoid apostasy, you can avoid departing from the true essentials of the Christian faith. So the prognosis is you need to stay in tune with the word so you don't fall away. Now, in other parts of Second Peter, we've read about these false teachers And Peter considers these false teachers to be 
worthy of eternal judgment. They're not saved. They're not going to heaven. They haven't been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. However, believers, we don't, we don't lose our salvation. The fact is, in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, Peter says that we are kept by the power of God. Now, let me ask you a question. When I got saved and I became a child of God, the scripture says that my salvation is kept by the power of God. So isn't it true then that the only way I can ever lose my salvation is if a bigger power than the power of God comes along and steals me out of God's hand? In John 17, when Jesus is praying his high priestly prayer, he, he, he says about his disciples that they are in your hand and no man can pluck them out. So no man, by the way, includes me. So I can't do anything to lose my salvation. Now, I have seen a lot of people that came to church and they said they received Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, uh, you look a year later and there's absolutely zero evidence whatsoever that they know Jesus. There are people who make false professions. But no one genuinely receives Jesus Christ without being changed eternally. Um, I was looking earlier, I'm hoping to get a friend up here this week because we have another camera we want to put, or excuse me, another projector like this one we want to put pointing at that rear screen. That way, Steve, when he's teaching or the pastor or I, when we're preaching, we can see if the right slide's up and we don't have to have a computer on the pulpit and that'll make life easier uh, for all of us. And people sitting up here playing in the orchestra or singing in the choir, they'll be able to see stuff and we've got we to gotta get rid of at least one chandelier and maybe raise up a second chandelier to be able to see the screen well from up here. And so we got some work and I, I got thinking about tomorrow is a company holiday for us. It's now a national holiday, so I've got the day off. And I think my friend does too, so I'm going to call him up and say, can you come help me hang a projector this week? And, and I was thinking, where's the ladder? And then I caught a glimpse of it. We have a ladder back here laying in the baptistry that's our big tall ladder. And it's the only one we got that's tall enough to get up there uh, to the ceiling. Uh, but I remember being on top of a tall ladder one day doing electrical work, and uh, the switch was off. But even when the switches are off at the wall, the wire can be hot. And I didn't know that. Didn't know as much about electrical wiring then as I do now. And I'm on top of the ladder and I'm up there and I actually didn't, the switch was off. I didn't go to the circuit breaker because I was too lazy to go do that. And so I'm working on the wire all of a sudden. I got shocked by that electricity. Well, when I got shocked, uh, several things happened. First of all, I instantly jumped my hand back, nearly fell off the ladder because it was somewhat violent reaction. Uh, I said the word Albuquerque, which those of you who know me know that when I really get upset, I've learned to use the word Albuquerque instead of some other choice words I might be able to use. And, and so I said Albuquerque, and then I thought, I don't want to do that again. And it changed my behavior. Well, guess what? If you can touch 124 volts of electricity or 120 volts of electricity, and it changed your behavior, you should be forever changed if you meet the greatest power of all, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It should change you uh, forever. Now, Peter knows you can't lose your salvation. He's already told them you're kept by the power of God. But a believer can fall away from the truth. They can lose their eternal rewards, which, by the way, is the whole lesson of the book of Hebrews. The whole book is about losing eternal rewards. I can't lose my salvation, but I can lose the rewards that I have in heaven. Uh, my works will be tried by fire and some of them will be burnt up. I can lose my testimony and I can lose a godly influence on others. 
And I have people in my own family that have taken theological detours that I believe has caused them to lose the effectiveness of their testimony. So we need to avoid apostasy and backsliding. Now, but God guards true believers. And Peter, all that he'd written, all he warned them of was so that they could be vigilant. To be vigilant means you're watching carefully for danger. And that's what he wanted for them is to watch carefully for danger. Now, elsewhere in the New Testament, uh, we are told that the Lord will guard, it's the Greek word philoso, those who are his, ensuring they will not fall away irretrievably. Uh, get out a pen if you got one. I'm going to give you a few scriptures that are not on the slide here. I just want you to look at these scriptures. Uh, first of all, let me give you these two that are on the slide. Second list, Thessalonians 3.3. 3. It says, The Lord is faithful who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And so that verse indicates to me that he's going to keep me from hell. He's going to keep me uh, from the lake of fire. He's not going to let me be eternally judged. Even better is Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. God's going to keep me from falling eternally. He's going to make it where he, Jesus Christ can present me to the Father uh, and I'll be spotless and without blemish because God is going to look at me and see me through the eyes of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and he knows that I'm forgiven. Let me give you two others. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 14. Listen to this. Whatever God does, He does forever that men should fear before Him. When God saved me, He saved me forever so that I would worship Him and fear Him in a reverent way knowing that He did something for me I could never do myself. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14, it says, For he has perfected forever them that are sanctified. When Jesus Christ sanctified me, that is, he set me apart for himself, I became called a child of God. It says he's perfected me forever. Now, does that mean I'm perfect? Not in terms of my behavior down here, but when God looks at me, he sees me through Christ-colored glasses, and he sees me in Christ, and Christ is perfect and so the Father sees me perfected already. That's how He guards me. Now here's another thing. Exhortations are not only based on love, but they help us avoid problems. And so He says in the next part of verse 17, that if, if you forget His instructions and exhortations epistle, you could be carried away by the errors of lawless men. In other words, people uh, who are ungodly, the false teachers. The word carried away... Uh, can also be translated in Galatians 2.13 as led astray. And it's talking about a group movement or a corporate movement. In other words, the false teachers that are out there are not after just you. They're after moving whole groups of people away from doctrine. They're after destroying entire churches. They're after corrupting lots of people. Maybe they're, uh, they're going to corrupt you all, get you to start doing a works-based uh, religion, and those works will somehow benefit them because they're doing it to get your riches transferred to themselves. And this is a lot of the uh, health and wealth success gospel that you hear about. Uh, so false teachers aren't satisfied with just ambition one or two. They want to get large groups of people. And if you keep company with people like that, you're in danger of being led astray. Now, by the way, this led astray is being, is being referred to as falling, but it doesn't mean losing your salvation. If you are genuinely a child of God, you will remain that. But 
if we pay attention to the warnings, we heed the prognosis, then we can maintain our position in the truth. Here's something else about spiritual exhortations there to keep us firm and faithful. Peter says, I don't want you to fall from your steadfastness. That's the word in the King James. Uh, Other translations, uh, Lexham English Bible says secure position. And this comes from the Greek word sterigmu, which means a firm or secure position. And Peter, by the way, uses a lot of other words in 2 Peter that are either adjectives or verbs that are based on this same root word. So over and, again, over, and over again throughout 2 Peter, while he's saying stay away from false teachers, he's saying if you adhere to the truth, you'll be secure, you'll be firm, you'll be well-founded, you'll be unmovable, and you will stay in the truth. And that's what he wants for us. Uh, by the way, in verse uh, 16, I believe, yes, in verse 16, he describes those who twist the Scriptures, or King James says, rest the Scriptures to their own destruction. You twist Scriptures to make them say what you want them to say rather than finding out what the Bible writer meant. And when you start twisting the Scripture to make it mean what you want it to mean, then there's a problem. Uh, I have known a lot of people over the last 40 years of ministry now who would twist an individual Scripture uh, about departing from unbelievers to justify them divorcing their spouse. Uh, and Scripture doesn't give us as Christians a reason to leave our spouse if they're not a Christian. In fact, is we should stay with them. We should treat them with the love of Christ. We should witness to them. We should pray for their salvation, but you don't leave them. Now, Paul does say in 1 Corinthians 7, if you're a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian spouse and they want out of the marriage... It uses an aorist imperative verb that says, let them depart. But you're never to initiate divorce as a Christian if you're to be in line with this word. Now, that doesn't mean that if you've done that, that God can't forgive you. Certainly he can. God permitted certain things in the law because of our propensity to sin. The Bible tells us that divorce was permitted in the first place during the days of Moses because of the hardness of men's hearts. It wasn't God's desire that anybody ever get divorced. By the way, just so you'll know, in the Old Testament where it covers the laws of divorce, it's a different kind of divorce than we have today. It was when you courted someone and you got permission from the father to to marry the girl, you became legally married, but you did not live with each other yet. It was called betrothal. And you were betrothed to that person for a year. And if during that year's time, you saw some uncleanness in your future wife. Let's say that uh, uh, she was maybe had her skirts too high or she did something else that uh, really bothered you or something that was immoral or something that was wrong. You could give her a writ of divorcement. But in Old Testament law, once a man and woman became physically united and became intimate with one another, divorce was no longer possible. By the time Jesus gets around, divorce had changed to much more of what Divorce is like today. Basically, Pharisees uh, would often thought you, uh, there was actually one rabbi that wrote that if your wife cooked your eggs too hard or if she whirled around in the street so that her skirt came above her ankles, you could divorce her. Okay, so we've gone a long way from God's original permission uh, that He had. Uh, the point is, though, is that people twist the scriptures so that they say what they want them to say. Uh, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. There were people who would uh, they enter the ministry. And as soon as they entered the ministry, 
and their parents were sick or ill or didn't have enough money to buy groceries. And any godly person would go take care of his parents. You honor your father and your mother that it may be well with you and that you may live long in the earth. It's a good thing to honor your parents. Uh, and uh, that's, that's a wonderful thing. But what these people would do, they'd enter the ministry and then they would say whenever their parents needed money for something, they said, I'm sorry, it's Corbin, which means the money that I have, it's been dedicated to ministry. It's God's money. I can't use it to help you. Now, it might be in his bank account, but because he'd entered the ministry, it was God's money and you couldn't help your parents anymore. Guess what? God doesn't want your money if you can't take care of your parents. You know, uh, So uh, they, these people are unstable, but we can become stable and firm if we'll spend time in the Word. Exhortations encourage us to grow. Um, and he tells them, you need to grow spiritually. Uh, now, when we say grow spiritually, that doesn't just mean that you feel more spiritual or you have more emotional experiences or you have some ecstatic experience. When Peter says grow spiritually, he specifically says in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're growing spiritually? Do you know more about Jesus now than you did 12 months ago? Have you... Talked with Jesus more now than you did 12 months ago. Are you seeing Jesus work in your life more now than you did 12 months ago? Uh, we need to know, uh, do we know more about Jesus? If we're remaining stagnant or stale, and we're not studying God's word, then we're not growing spiritually. We have to be intentionally learning it. And by the way, this word grow is a present imperative, which means we are to be continually growing. You can never, if, if you do take FBI, I want to, I think you're great if you take FBI. You've done something that will benefit you for the rest of your life. But if after three years of FBI you get the diploma and then you say to yourself, I don't ever have to study the Bible again because I know it all, well, then you're an idiot. Uh, you don't stop growing spiritually ever. Uh, you don't stop growing spiritually at, at any time. Now, spiritual growth, though, happens intentionally. Um, I, I didn't really have to think as a kid about getting taller uh, because as my mother fed me and took care of me, I got taller. I actually got to be six foot two at one time and then as you get old and your, your spine gets compressed and your discs degenerate, now I'm six foot one. I'm not, I'm not six two any longer. I wished I was, but I'm not. Uh, and also I used to have at least another extra inch on top of everything with hair. Well, that's not growing anymore either, so I, don't, I can't add an extra inch from hair. I can't add anything. I don't think there's a millimeter up there, quite frankly. And, and so I, I, don't, I don't have that. But I did not have to think about growing physically. In fact, is I'm still the same way. I do not have to think about enhancing my gut. It does so on itself if I'm eating enough cheese enchiladas. Okay, so I don't have to think about that. Physical growth, you don't have to focus on. If you plant a bean plant in dirt and give it a little water, the bean plant's not down there having to be intentional about growing. It's in its nature to grow. But to grow spiritually, we have to make an effort. We have to be intentional. We have to decide to grow in, in grace. And by the way, Brother Steele, I was trying to think this morning, used a definition two weeks ago of grace. Can you recall what you said? God's power working in the heart of the believer to enable him to do what Jesus That was the one that you said. God's power working in the heart of the believer to enable him to what? Do the will of God? To do the will of God. Okay. 
So my, my definition is pretty close to that. My definition uh, from Scripture is that grace is the desire and ability to do the will of God with joy. In other words, if I have grace, I want to do God's will. And if I have grace, I have the ability to do God's will. And I can be cheerful while doing it. That's grace. Now, a lot of people just simply say grace is unmerited favor of God. Nothing wrong with that definition. I just don't think it goes far enough. Uh, But we have to be intentional. And so the only way I can grow in grace is to spend time in the Word, to spend time in prayer, to spend time with Jesus. Now, by the way, I want you to look at this. I'll prove it to you. 2 Peter chapter 1, we've already covered this. But listen to what it says. Beside all this, give all diligence. That means make diligent sincere, intentional effort to add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness charity. By the way, the order is important. You need to know why those words are in that order. And if you want to know, you need to go out to our sermonaudio.com website and you can pull up this sermon and hear me explain that. But notice again, this spiritual growth You have to be diligent to do it. It won't happen on its own. Spiritual growth is not an accident. It's a process. It begins by knowing Jesus Christ by receiving Him as your Savior. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. This is eternal life that they know Thee, the true Father, and Jesus Christ whom Thou hast sent. You know what eternal life is? It's knowing God the Father and knowing Christ Jesus the Son. That's the definition Jesus gave to eternal life. But it continues in deepening our relationship with Him. We're forgetting those things which are behind, Paul said in Philippians 3, and pushing forward to those things which are before. We strive toward the mark of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. We have to work toward becoming more like Christ. So you have to initially be saved, but then you have to make effort to become more like Jesus. Both are necessary. If you've never asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sins, you can't grow spiritually because you've never been born spiritually. One of the burdens of my life is that there are some people in my family who have decided to follow Greek Orthodox theology. Let me tell you why that really bugs me. In the Greek Orthodox Church, and it's also true of Catholic Church, uh, they teach that if a child is what they call baptized, and they don't baptize like we do. We, we, we fill up the baptistry with water. We put the person in the water. We bring them back up. I have a very specific way to do that. By the way, one of our Indian congregations has three people ready to be baptized. That right there shows you that when we involve others and have, give them the opportunity for ministry, we're being blessed because our church is getting to be used for baptism. So praise the Lord for that. He deserves all the glory. But they, they basically put a few drops on the water's head and they have the priest say something over them. And they teach that a child that has that happen to them, even as an infant, never needs to repent. They never need to invite Jesus Christ in their hearts to save them. They are already saved because a sacrament of the church conveyed salvation to them. Now, this is where you really should have listened to Brother Steve's Sunday school lesson this morning because he had about four points on a slide talking about different ways that theology gets compromised in telling people the wrong message about salvation. And here's the problem. God will not share His glory with another. 
And when the church takes credit for saving people, instead of giving the glory to Jesus Christ for saving people, there is something badly wrong with your theology. And I, I have as a concern on my heart that some of my grandchildren may grow up trusting in their church and their sacraments to save them instead of knowing that they need to repent. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart in a big way. We have to have that initial relationship with Jesus Christ or we can never grow spiritually. But by the same token, you could be going to FBI and learning more and more about the Lord and you could be technically learning about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if you'd never stop to invite Jesus Christ in your heart to save you to begin with, he says that one day you're going to forget that you've been cleansed from your past sins. You're going to forget what Jesus Christ. In other words, let me, let me reverse. If you've asked Jesus Christ in your heart, but you never grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, you will one day forget that you have been cleansed from your past sins. I've seen people that as a child, they're nine years old, they came into conviction, they understood the gospel, uh, they made a profession of faith in the church, and they were a Christian, they went to church, and then something happens to them. They get to high school or get to the college, and they're around the wrong kind of friends, and they quit going to church. And, and 20 years later, they don't even think about that religious experience. They don't think about the fact that they repented and asked Jesus Christ in their heart. In fact, they don't really remember they've been cleansed from their sins. It doesn't get on their radar again. We have to grow or we forget. Vigilance. That is, if we want to be aware of danger in the world, we must grow spiritually to do that. Because otherwise we won't recognize doctrinal error when it comes around because we didn't take the time to know the Word of God. And again, if you're taking Faith Bible Institute, I commend you. Uh, and I'll show you the link for those of you who are not doing it. You can sign up this week and that would be a great thing for you. But we have to have an intentional and daily drawing near to Jesus Christ and that fuels us in such a way that it will protect our souls against heresy and compromise. Same way, by the way, when you take certain vitamins, it makes you less likely to get colds, less likely to take uh, the coronavirus. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll mention this just real briefly. In my pocket, this is a zinc lozenge because my doctor told me and explained to me that when people get the coronavirus, it first settles in their throat. And so the first symptoms are a sore throat, a hacking cough, maybe a low-grade fever. He said, if the minute you start feeling any of those things, you start popping zinc lozenges and sucking on them, the coronavirus dies when it meets zinc. And if you stop it there, then it doesn't have a chance to get in your lungs, because when it gets in your lungs, you need some pretty serious medical treatment. Uh, so that's why I carry those around. Anytime my throat feels a little raw, and I had surgery a few weeks ago, so it's felt raw ever since then. So just on the safe side, uh, I'm taking those, even though I don't think I've been exposed anywhere. But... In the same way, reading God's Word, spending time with Him, inoculates us against error. And here's maybe one of the last points, and that is, exhortation should always glorify the Lord. Uh, Peter does a brilliant job here at the end of affirming that Jesus Christ and the Father are both the same God. We don't have three gods. Uh, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit aren't three kinds of gods. Just like if you take ice and steam... And uh, this glass of water here, uh, it's not three different things. They're really all just one H2O. They're all water, just three different forms. Now, I have to be careful of saying that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are three different forms. They're not. They're three different persons, and that's a long topic in theology. But they're the same God. They're the same 
God. That's why God talking, when nobody else was around, God speaking to himself said, let us make man in our image. By the way, in Hebrew, any word that ends with I am is plural. But in Hebrew, there's singular, there's dual, and there's plural. Singular means just one. Anything that's dual means two. Anything that's plural means three or more. God's name in the Old Testament is Elohim. Anything that ends with an I am is a plural. And so it means that he is at least three. That's why he says, let us make man in our image. And then it says the spirit brooded over the face of the waters. But then John 1, it tells us that, that without Christ, nothing was made that was made. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved uh, in creation. But, but notice what he says here. He says, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord means God. Savior is referring to Jesus Christ. And then he says his name. So Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is God. He's not, uh, by the way, Jehovah's Witnesses say that he is a God. Uh, Mormons say that he's the Archangel Michael. Uh, and uh, other people say, well, there are many gods, many ways to heaven. Uh, by the way, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, about uh, a week ago, a uh, Democratic representative got up to open the first congressional session of the new season with prayer. And in his prayer, he, he said, God or Allah or any other name by which people call him. Well, I'm sorry. First of all, Allah is not God. Uh, in fact, his Allah is named after Eli, which is a Sumerian moon god. That's where the name came from. Allah is not God. In fact, if you study the characteristics of Allah, he's nowhere near being God. Okay, so that's the first problem. And then, of course, he did the stupidest thing of all. He ends the prayer by saying, all men and all women. Which is stupid because all men doesn't have anything to do with being a man. It's a transliteration of the Greek word amen, which means let it be. When we say amen at the end of the prayer, we're asking to God, please let these requests come to pass. Amen. Uh, or if somebody is preaching and you, you feel so moved, and I did this several times while Steve was teaching this morning, that you know some, some truth that really resonates with you and you just want to second it, you can say amen. Meaning, that's, that's right. Let it be so. Uh, and, and it's okay to say amen. We need more of that kind of thing. Uh, but the one who's our Lord is our Savior. And in Isaiah 42, 8, it says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. So God would never in Scripture let Jesus Christ be called Lord unless He was God. He didn't share His glory. 2 Peter 1.17 says it this way, For He, talking about Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory. You don't glorify something that's not God. When there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, that's the, Son, the Father in heaven, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. God the Father glorified God the Son because guess what? They're both God. They're both God. Now, I'm going to give you a phrase. It's not here on this slide, but write this down. You can, uh, you can uh, you know, jot it on your hand, and when you go home, you write it down on paper so it'll still be there as long as your palms don't sweat. You can, you can write it on a piece of paper. You can write it on the bulletin. There's extra bulletins back there. You can write it in your Bible, or you can take your notepad out on your, your cell phone and type this in. Because this will be maybe one of the most profound things you will ever hear me say. Here it is. You all ready? The main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. 
Everybody got that? Uh, that, was, that was tough. Let me do it again. The main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. So what do I mean by that? Peter ends his epistle by giving God the glory. That's his praise. That's his prayer. He wants us to give God the glory. The glory of redemption, he redeemed us. The glory of spiritual growth, he alone can help us grow spiritually and become more like Christ. The glory of manifesting the symphony of grace. God gives us grace in so many ways. And that's his glory that does it. The glory of being able to escape from false teachers because you've learned the word. Give God the glory. The glory of the fact that he is coming back. No matter what they say, they will not stop Jesus from coming back. All glory belongs to Jesus. And he receives that glory, Peter says, both now and forever. Forever literally means in Greek... To the day of the age, talking about to the end of this age, to the the time when God's judgment upon mankind becomes final. From the moment of Christ through all the moments of the New Testament, throughout the history of the church, to the present day and until eternity comes. No wonder that Peter concluded with an affirmative word of praise. So... We're about to say our final prayer. and Brother Steve's going to come and lead us in a song. And as we do so, and as we leave to go out and lead our lives this week and serve the Lord, serve our employers, serve our fellow man, serve Jesus Christ, what would be two of the most important things I could leave you with? Don't follow or stay around false teaching and false teachers. And the second would be grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ by spending time in His Word, by spending time in prayer, and by walking with Jesus every moment. And you'll never regret your life if you do that. Let's, uh, let's have Brother Steve come and lead us in song. Why don't you stand? And if you have something you want to come talk to the Lord about here at the altar, please do. If you need me to pray for you, I'm happy to do that. I'm about to mute the mic that's on my tie so that uh, you can share that with me in private. Uh, And let's do that, and then we'll have a final word.